0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hardcore
2: is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider.
0: Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States.
2: From the science of fermentation.
1: So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus.
2: To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspects of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this
3: singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider and I will die on that point. Subscribe to
2: Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I speak to someone who inspires me with their intelligence, their perseverance, and their vision. Today, my guest is Claudia Fleming, owner of North Fork Table and Inn on the North Fork of Long Island. We've known each other for a couple of decades, which I don't know how I feel about saying that, Mm. but it's completely true. Yeah. We first met when I was editor-in-chief of Food & Wine, and Claudia was the pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern. Claudia made the cakes for my wedding. Multiple cakes, because it was no fancy tiered cake for me. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. (laughs) And at Food & Wine, then we followed Claudia's journey to her gigs after Gramercy Tavern, finally opening her dream restaurant and inn with her husband, Jerry Hayden. And then the magazine... And Claudia had a falling out. So I'm honored to have Claudia in the studio, not just because she's one of the most talented pastry chefs that America has ever known, not just because her book is being reissued, but also to have the chance to revisit and move on from a moment in my time at Food & Wine that really bothers me to this day. So I'm really glad to to have you here. So your story in so many ways is a, a story of reinvention based on passions and technique and, and something of monotony, which I think is <laughs> transition. I love monotony. I know you do. <laughs> I just think that's so interesting because transition is so active and monotony has its activities as well. Mm-hmm. And the reason we're talking about monotony and activity is because you started out uh, in life as a dancer.
2: Yes. Or a wannabe dancer, anyway. Uh, tell me about that dancer's life. Well... I think a dancer's life is different than an aspiring dancer's life, <laughs> and I was most definitely an aspiring dancer and not very good at it. It's really hard, it's really competitive, it's daunting and relentless and it became apparent pretty quickly that I just didn't have the stuff, but the thing that you went to
3: as a as a transitional moment was being a server, yes, yes, always working in restaurants yes. and That's sort of funny, right? Because the the dancer's life and trajectory, you know where you're going. Whereas when you sign up to be a server, it's a little bit less known. Like, was that a moment of uncertainty? What what were you thinking? Like, were you entertaining many, many ideas in your mind?
2: No. um, The year was 1981. And New York was a gritty, rough place. And... I was young and impressionable and found myself in the restaurant business, which is a crazy place in the 80s. A little too much fun was had. And it's easy to lose sight of your goals when you're having so much fun. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) And I did. And I loved the restaurant business and the and being in a restaurant so much I got to perform more there than I did in my dance life because it is showtime every night but when you say you lost sight of your goals what did you lose sight of uh waking up early every day taking two to three dance classes going to auditions living and breathing it you know mostly it was waking up late getting up in time to iron my shirt to go to work to do it all over again and then how did you transform that Being at Jams, Jonathan Waxman was the chef and incredibly inspirational. At the time, I think there were three women in the kitchen, and they were all very instrumental in inspiring me to even think I could work in a kitchen. You know, after several years of waiting tables, one starts to think, hmm, maybe this isn't really forever, and I should think about doing something else. And it was an exciting time and food was exciting and and I just gravitated to the kitchen and Jonathan heard that and asked me if I wanted to come in on, you know, afternoons before work, just check it out, see if it was something that I really was interested in.
3: There's an, an interesting sort of... Part of your life where there are some people who've given you great opportunities and just small suggestions that you then took enormous advantage of. Right? Jonathan being one, hey, come, you know, check it out. Yeah. Um, Maury Rubin, who uh, was the proprietor of City Bakery, one of my favorite places in New York that sadly recently closed, but will have another life. But Maury saying, you know, Try Fauchon. Stop bugging me. Don't yeah.
2: go, try to come work for me. <laughs> go to France. Go to, go to France. <laughs> um, what was it like going, going to France? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I did start this career pretty late in life. And, um, you know, in France, being a pastry chef is a trade. It's kind of like being an electrician or, you know, being a carpenter. And so a lot of the people that do it are young men. And I was, when I was at Fauchon, I was surrounded by, I think it was like 35 boys between the ages of like 15 and 25. That's kind of crazy to think of. That's a very high number. And the one woman that worked there was on sabbatical when I was there. (laughs) (laughs) I think she came back the last two weeks I was there. Yeah. And, well, I may as well have been invisible. I was completely invisible to them. So observing became the way to learn. So what did you see? Like, what did you learn at Fauchon? I learned organization. I learned systems. Um, I learned perfectionism. Oh, I think you started with that. <laughs> I don't know. Not not to that level. Or, or, and I don't really think of myself as being a perfectionist, but I think I can recognize it. And that, and actually, that's where I learned that I don't like to make cake so much. And so what cakes were you making there? Well, again, you don't really get to make things. You, you get them. to watch. <laughs> um, you have the privilege of watching. Uh, Pierre Hermé was at Fauchon at that time, and he was creating those incredible entremets. Um, and Which for listeners is? Is... Um, a layered cake, those very classic French cakes with a, you know, a genoise and a mousse, and or two kinds of mousse, and then a glaze on top, and um, all these uh, fabulous and exotic flavors and um, combinations of things. Um, and they just seemed static to me.
3: That's so interesting because they were all the rage. So you just you just thought different. Like just being in that kitchen, you're like,
2: why that? Yeah, I mean. They were perfect. They were beautiful. But they were constructed, which I think even back then wasn't something I was attracted to.
3: So um, with those boys, you were invisible. Sexism of a a kind,
2: on the other hand, being just purely invisible, I don't know. (laughs) An old lady. I think I was 33 at the time. And you think they just found you just so old? Just so old and so not interesting and so whatever. <laughs> Some silly American that's going to copy everything we do and go back to the United States and Boy, were they wrong about successful. that. Do you
3: yeah. think that there was something about um, starting your, um, your cooking career later that was an advantage or parts of it that were kind of a disadvantage?
2: I would say the advantage was that I was more mature of heart and mind, mm-hmm. but the disadvantage was being pushed into managerial and responsibility before I was necessarily ready for it, which is why the very reason I went to France, because when I was leaving Tribeca Grill, I was getting phone calls from people asking me to be their pastry chef, and I, I, I didn't know anything. I mean, I'd been doing pastry for a year and a half, maybe. And I thought, I have no right to be anybody's pastry chef. I need to go learn the basics. So
3: different from the way of thinking today, right? Because someone who's been a pastry chef for a year and a half, they're like, I've totally got this down. (laughs) I am so ready. And you're like, no, no, I think maybe I should learn something. Which might have to do with, you know, your feeling of not entirely succeeding as a dancer. A dancer, the aspiring. Like, you didn't want to be aspiring pastry the way you were aspiring...
2: Dancer. yeah that's a great point you just wanted to like do it right mm-hmm. this time and not with any expectation right no one's paying me I'm just I'm there to absorb and learn I mean that's kind of dreamy right um kind of like college I guess with less pressure even I think if it were me, I'd feel even more pressure, though, because I'd
3: feel like, okay, one thing didn't work out. Like, this may or may not. What am I doing? Like, did you have that sensor in your mind, or was it really just a free time in Paris?
2: It was really just a free time in Paris. Yeah. And then you good. came
3: back, and you
2: um,
3: were recommended to Danny Meyer, mm-hmm. who was opening mm-hmm. Gramercy Tavern, and Tom Clucko uh, was the chef. It said, or I've read, that Tom hired you without tasting a single thing you'd cooked. True? Yeah.
2: Yes, true. I don't know what I would have done if I had to cook for him. <laughs> like, well, I, 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 I can't even imagine. Why not? I don't know. Mm. It, uh, I don't know. I, I, You know what? I don't even know if back then people were doing tastings for, for jobs.
3: Right. I mean, just for anyone who's listening, I mean, today you would do, like, Multiple it, tastings. multiple tastings. You do tasting for potentially for investors. You do tasting for yeah. the chef. You do tasting for the owner. I mean, you really wouldn't walk in the door and someone says, "Hey, you've got a good background." Which, is assuming yeah. like, Tom, I'm like you, look, you're you have a good vibe. So Tom, right? Right. <laughs> I think I can trust you. Right. Yeah. What was it like
2: developing your first set of desserts? Well, it wasn't a set; they came one at a time. No way. Absolutely. One at a time? One at a time. Oh, yeah. I'm, I was not that good. Like, it was trial and error, you know, going into the office with the dish every, you know, whatever it was, every day, every other day, whatever. And it would be like, finally, okay, I think that's it. We can put that on the menu. What was the first dish? If memory serves, I think it was the waffles oh. with uh, roasted bananas and maple custard. So delicious,
3: <laughs> so and and quite revolutionary. Did you feel revolutionary? No,
2: no, not at all. I was I was trying to fit in. I was trying to fit in with the style of the restaurant, with the style of Tom's cooking. Like back then, like I, it never occurred to me that I was trying to make a name for myself. Like it just wasn't part of anything I thought about. What did you think about? I wanted to make people happy. and it is about fitting in. I wanted to be part of this extraordinary group of people that were creating this new way of dining and seasonality and locality. That was all that was all pretty. New back then, because if you go back to jams, we were FedExing vegetables every day. Can you imagine doing that I now? Truly, I was like, "Wow, food cost! Oh my goodness! Carbon footprint! Oh, yeah, just sure. like like there's just inconceivable, really inconceivable.
3: I mean, there's so many
2: reasons why. Like there weren't the farms there are today. No, no, not at all. And I- that started, you know, that was like the precursor to local, right? Jonathan talking to farmers and saying, well, can you grow this for me that I used, That I have to fly in from California? And, and I remember so it, food and, and wine
3: did. when, um, you know, we were hearing about people FedExing ingredients and all kinds of ingredients from all kinds of places. And at that moment, it was like, that's so cool. Yeah. But in fact, you know, now I think not so much. That's horrific. What were we doing? What were you doing? What were we proud of? Yeah. You know, in terms yeah. of Uh, ingredients on the plate instead of looking at what's around you it's just the evolution that we've both lived through Uh, in food we're in such a different place but you created such a difference by saying um, that dessert can be local which I don't think just in America because we've been so beholden to the French Mm. and also beholden to what you call like Lego desserts you know things that had been constructed
2: and constructed yes
3: with that too were much tall. sugar
2: and too freezing cold. And like, who wants to spoon into ice cream that's rock hard? And it had to be if it was going to hold that shape. In your book, The Last
3: Course, you have beautiful ice creams. And the ice creams are simple, but they're infused with incredible flavor. Yeah. So I had, and you worked at Friendlies, which I just like, I kind of love that idea. It still tickles me. <laughs> um, is there anything about Friendlies that? is something that you think about or thought about when you were making those first ice creams that were part of the Gramercy?
2: Well, the thing about Friendly is less about the ice cream and more about the pace Uh of it. It was super fast-paced, which I really loved. Um, In
3: developing ice creams, like the Lemon Verbena or the Lavender, what was that thought
2: process? Well, I wanted those very interesting and unusual flavors, but... I didn't necessarily want to eat them. Eat, you know, eat those plants. And there's no better vehicle for flavor than fat. So, ice cream is just such a perfect foil for absorbing flavor. Um, and you can make them as intense or as delicate as your heart desires.
3: And cookies what about
2: your obsession with cookies? I'm not even sure why I have an obsession with cookies, but I think it's just the most basic and simple of creamy and crispy. Because I like them together, ice cream and cookies. <laughs> well, uh.
3: I mean, you had um, back in the day a lot of parfaits that had little cookies at the side, right?
2: uh-huh. so yeah, that at the base of the plate. The, yeah. So you had both, and I don't like to. I don't like ice creams with a bunch of stuff in them. Well, like everything I do, actually, indicative of desserts, I I don't mix stuff together. I tend to separate things out from one another to highlight each thing, and then they come together in your mouth. (laughs) Do you do that with savory as well? I think savory does that naturally
3: on its own, I feel like. Okay, so this is such a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway.
2: What do you remember about my wedding? Do you remember anything about my wedding? I remember being in the basement with about eight people, frantically and frenetically plating, um, not plating, pardon me, decorating all those cakes. I mean, I think there were like 20 of them or something. We, we had an entire table
3: Of cakes. And this was 1998. So it was really before, I mean, today, the expectation would be well, of course, you're going to have, you know, (laughs) like a a, a cupcake tree or you're going to do all these deconstructed things. But I have to say, you and I together were at the beginning of something, which was saying, no, I don't
2: really want um, a tall cake. So. Do you remember the phone call? Okay, tell me about the phone call. Okay, so you called me and asked me to do this, to make your wedding cake, which was the most insane honor. And I did not feel worthy and um, was terrified because I didn't like to make cakes. And I didn't make cakes. You know, that was somebody, that's a different job than a restaurant pastry chef. So I'm sitting at my desk and you're saying, I don't really want anything traditional and you know, it doesn't have to be, like, tiered and blah, blah, blah. And the artist, Wayne Thiebaud? Yeah. What? I had a bunch of his postcards. at. I was sitting at my desk, and they were on my cork bo- board. And I'm looking at one of the paintings that is a bunch of cakes on pedestals, all different sizes, and different cakes. And I said, what if we do all different sized cakes decorated differently and you were like oh I love that and then I went oh my god what did I just say how am I going to pull this off oh shit
3: uh, and that's what we had and that's what we had and they that's- were so beautiful um, all in pastels which yes themselves were beautiful and some with polka dots and some with I feel like it couldn't have been a ribbon but no it was it was a ribbon yes we removed the
2: ribbon <laughs> before we cut them that's why I'm like it not uh, yeah. a ribbon <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, some with fondant some with buttercream you know some smaller some larger um and roberta ben david who is still the the uh flower designer at gramercy decorated the entire tavern table so beautifully everything on different levels with all different kinds of greenery it was magnificent it really was it, it was great and and uh I, as
3: happens with one's wedding like it all goes by it's in simpler. such a blur. Yeah. But I do know that my wedding cakes were delicious, unlike any <laughs> wedding cake that had ever been made before. Right, where it's all about the the
2: artistry and it's not about the flavor. And right. I was, well, they were
3: made the day before. That is incredible.
2: You know, you know, I mean, most wedding cakes are made the week before so that you can decorate them. I didn't know that. Is that how it works? Oh yeah. Uh, and then
3: you stayed at Gramercy and Tom left because he he yes. went to, he went to, open, to craft. open Craft at the back side of Gramercy, which is... Yeah,
2: that was pretty crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Um,
3: and you stayed for a bit and then you left. Yeah. Uh, and you left and pursued a completely different path, which is, again, like a transition that I'm fascinated by. We, and you, um, you left and went to, to Pratt. I don't know if Pratt was immediately... What you went to
2: after? Yes, Pret- yes. Pret- a manger. Yes, I left Gramercy to go to Pret. I mean, there was no other restaurant to go to, right? Where was I going to go?
3: What fe- yeah. What did that feel like? Because I I can imagine. I mean, I left Food and Wine, and I had no interest in going to another magazine. But I also mm-hmm. didn't want to. I didn't want to do print. I didn't want to do digital in the same way. I didn't want to even think about those things that I'd been thinking about for 20 years. Like I just had no interest. Did it feel like that to you, Like in that way that you were done, or just like...
2: Yeah, I felt kind of done with the restaurant. I felt I had done as much as I was going to do. I had my 15 minutes. I was perfectly satisfied with that and you know jerry and i were recently married and trying to have a family and the restaurant business is just not so conducive to that and so um sandwiches have always been my passion second only to ice cream and cookies and uh i love it because actually like it would seem
3: that your business would be an ice cream sandwich um (laughs) ice cream cookie sandwich
2: business. <laughs> but Cool House got there. I mean, it's just... Hey, hey, you know what? I, it's, it's all good. I think I still have a couple of years left. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm <laughs> excited we're going to get
3: to that later in the show. But
2: why sandwiches? What's so great about a sandwich? Um, I, I think partly because having danced for so many years, they were kind of the forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just so indulgent. And growing up, every Saturday afternoon... My mom went shopping. We went to the Italian deli and got all the Italian groceries and the Italian bread and the fresh mozzarella and, um, you know, the soppressata and the prosciutto and all that great stuff. And then we'd go to the German deli and get all the German cold cuts and, you know, the potato salad. and, and It sounds very delicious. It was so delicious. And so Saturday afternoon, was like we got to make our own sandwiches. And so... You know, I would just put all kinds of things. It was just fun to compose a sandwich, Um, which, as I'm saying it now, is just the opposite of what I do with desserts, right? I deconstruct desserts and I compose sandwiches. Hmm, how about that? (laughs) Uh. I I mean, but they are quite different because... I guess the thing about
3: a, a sandwich, what happens in your mouth is the same thing that happens with your desserts, because you were saying, like, it all gets together in your mouth, and that's what happens with a sandwich. Yes, So exactly. you, you're planning in your desserts what sandwiches do more naturally. Okay.
2: Let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, I mean, I, Pret um, didn't turn out to be in, the dream job, and then uh, no. you're, you, as you said, newly married to Jerry Hayden. And I still remember seeing you at a muse, which was his restaurant, yes. in New York City, mm-hmm. and you had gone from the kitchen to the front to of the, the house front of the house. What was that like going to the front of the house? so front of the house meaning um you were greeting the guests yes, and nice you were hosting yeah. and-
2: I guess it for me was an opportunity to kind of have his back i didn't feel like he had, I mean, whilst he had a good manager, I felt like I was a better promoter of him, and I wanted that for him. And, you know, as I just stated, I had had my 15 minutes, and I wanted him to have his, and um, that was a way for me to try to help with that. And you didn't
3: have any conflict about stepping away from your 15
2: minutes? really didn't. Where do you think that is? It's it's hard to be out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot. Um, and and when you do the same thing as your spouse, it gets even harder. And so, yeah, I was good with where I was. So we're going to take a, a quick break.
3: And when we come back, we're going to hear about the inn and restaurant that Jerry and Claudia opened together. And uh, more about that food and wine story that was actually the end of a a long relationship that's being reignited right here. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and today I'm delighted to have as my guest, Claudia Fleming, who is America's best love pastry chef. I I love saying that. Maybe not pastry chef, though. Seems unfair. You probably don't consider yourself a pastry chef. I don't. A dessert chef, a dessert cook, a dessert... You're a dessert person. I'm a dessert person. And you're so much more than that. So... Dialing back, it was t- it was 2006 when you and Jerry, after, I think you, you had to work on and renovate the house in which yes you opened North, North Fork Table and When my mother walked in, she cried.
2: <gasps> How are you ever going to make anything out of this?
3: I mean, it was a wreck. Had you chosen the North Fork for a reason? Like, you grew up on Long Island,
2: but not the North Fork. Correct. Jerry summered out there. And it was always his dream to go back there and open a country inn and restaurant. Time seemed right. And there it was. And there it was. I mean, we were both consulting at the time. And unbeknownst to me, he was looking for restaurants. He was a very convincing person. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: and I bought in. And it has a couple of rooms. It doesn't. Four. It Just four. four.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And- Plenty. <laughs> 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 and so at Food and Wine, where we were always interested in what you were doing, what was happening next, we set up a a photo shoot at the inn. And my recollection, uh, you have a better recollection of my wedding, so you probably have a better recollection of this as well. Oh no, probably not. <laughs> but we did a photo shoot, and the photo shoot actually wasn't great. Like we didn't take great pictures, and I still remember getting those pictures and saying, okay, what what are we going to do with this? I think our idea at the time was to do something we hadn't done, which is what I always was trying to do, like trying to reinvent the form, reinvent the format. We were putting you in a section that we had never created before, and when we, when
2: we published it, you were really unhappy. Yeah. What do you remember about that? I remember that there were no photos of Jerry, and in my mind... You know, I made the dessert. He'd made the appetizers, the entrees, the sides, the, you know, like he made the whole meal. <laughs> and, you know, referencing again, him wanting to have his 15 minutes, I was so frustrated that he wasn't present. And also that my life was no longer Claudia the pastry chef, right, or the pastry cook from Gramercy Tavern. I opened a restaurant in an inn with another couple. Mike and Mary Mraz, and my husband. And I was no longer a single entity. I was part of a whole, and just a quarter of that whole. And in my mind, I was the only one represented. And I was embarrassed and just felt horribly guilty that nobody else was represented except for me. And it just made me feel yucky. The, you know, the flaw was in the shoot.
3: And we couldn't we couldn't we couldn't fix that. But in having the the conversation, the the first have the conversation here, which is it was Jerry's time, and that's what you said to us at the time, right? Like he's not represented and that's just wrong. And that's how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. And we felt there was representation in the food. And uh, it, it felt like a misrepresentation to me. Right. But. And so the two of you worked together at, at the inn and made beautiful food and had a lot of acclaim. But Jerry was diagnosed with ALS in 2011. Uh-huh. Um, and you and he continued.
2: Yeah.
3: What was that like um you'd wanted so much to have his, him to have his moment. And there was, there was that time.
2: There was some of that. But I think that it became eclipsed by his illness. And, you know, Stephen Hawking was a brain, right? And he, you know, had ALS as well. And it didn't prevent him from doing what he did best, which was being a brain, thinking, uh, research. Jerry identified himself 100% with being a cook. And that was taken away from him. And it was, I mean, ALS is tragic for everybody. But I think it was especially tragic for him because that's what he was. That's how he identified himself. To his credit, he then took on the mantle of fundraising, to have help people recognize ALS and research and all that, um, and to this day, I don't know how he did what he did. Because, man, if it was me, I don't think I, I don't think I would have been that brave.
3: I remember seeing um, pictures of him by the food truck or in the market, and I feel like he organized a market yes, during the time did. when he was he did he was wheelchair bound for yep. some part of that time, um, after he wasn't really able to hold a pan, which was his first sort of realization that there's something terribly, terribly
2: wrong here. Yeah, he wanted people in the community to have access, because so many of the farmers don't have farm stands, because as small farmers, you can't both run a farm stand and be in the field. And so many of them would just come to the back door and say, I have this do you want this? Do you want that? I'll bring you this every week or whatever it was. And um, he wanted to share that with people. So a lot of our vendors would come to the parking lot on Friday afternoons and um, be able to buy things from the farmers that we bought from. That's
3: such a, a lovely opportunity for the community. Yeah. And great for Jerry to be able to be sort of part of the food, though, not cooking. Yes. I I mean it's so painful to even look back on, but in the middle of it, what was that like sort of in the day to day?
2: It's it is hard to look back on because all we could do was put one foot in front of the other. There really wasn't any other option. There's a lot of anger, of course. Um anger at the disease, at just being incapacitated you know uh, it wasn't at all clear how we were going to go forward I mean even when Jerry was still alive the restaurant was for sale Um, something that I think angered him very much at the beginning Um, and as time went on he began to understand that it just wasn't it wasn't my dream it wasn't my vision um, he was our north. He was our leader. He, it, I couldn't possibly carry on in the same way. And though I have carried on, uh, it is different. Um, I think it's still an incredible restaurant, but we miss him every day.
3: I bet you do. I mean, there's something about carrying on, but you're actually cooking, and you have to change the food. You have to... You're thinking both sides of the house. And I imagine also you, you got married. Well, we're the, we're the same age. So you got married just a tick after I did. Yeah. Probably, let's see, 98 to 2001. 2001. Yeah. Yeah. And so that must have just seemed very short. I mean, you waited a long time for that right guy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. I'm still mad at him right like that left way too soon it's such a bad disease yeah it's nasty and simultaneously actually my mother had alzheimer's so for five years you know i was losing both my mother and my husband you know one losing their mind and the other losing you know their physical ability what did you do to take care of yourself oh geez i don't know i'm I'm going to do that soon. (laughs) (laughs) You just try to make somebody comfortable, try to do and be whatever it is they want you to be. Uh, What do you think that was? um, You know, like I said, initially I think it was to carry on, Mm -hmm. and then towards the end just understanding what a burden it was Mm -hmm. and how what a monstrous undertaking it is, Mm -hmm. uh, that he wanted me to be free of it. Mm -hmm. So now you're, the
3: restaurant's for sale, Mm -hmm. as you say, it has been for six years, but the restaurant is for sale, and your mind seems open, right? In the same way that you've you've had these moments throughout your life, as we've just talked about in the last, um, you know, during our time together here, where you just, you're open to something different.
2: Yep. And you're feeling open to something different. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know how it is. I mean, as you get older, I mean, there's not an infinite amount of time left or that feeling of, you know, hmm, kind of wrapping it up here. So let's get on with it. And So you're feeling that energy. There's no better time, you're, really, you're, than you're, now, right?
3: There's no better time than now. But is there something in your mind that you would like to do? Just put it out there.
2: Travel. Travel. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been, the North Fork is an incredible source of inspiration, as is the internet, as is, you know, I still read magazines. I love <laughs> magazines. It's great. I don't love anything more than a magazine. But I think that there's nothing like that experience of being in another culture, another time, you know, another place. Um, it's freeing. And, I mean, it's the ultimate to being open, I think. And and I think my brain is ready to receive more information and more inspiration. And I have no idea where it's going to take me, but I think I would like to explore for a little while.
3: And you had referenced uh, about, like, the dark, coming out of a dark time. Mm. Were there things that you did to nudge yourself out of that
2: dark time, or was time took you out of that dark time I think it was time that did that um, as it does thankfully yeah there were lots of lots of days on the sofa with the puppy just under the covers um, and they become fewer and further between and sometimes you don't even know that you're as in as dark a place as you are but As you've referenced, I'm I'm coming out of it, and I'm excited to explore and discover whatever's next. And are
3: you, um, with having a a chef at the restaurant, are you free to pick up? Not yet. No, not yet.
2: No, I'm still in the kitchen every single day. Yeah, I do breakfast every day for the in-guests. And is the I do pastry production, then I jump on the food truck. You're busy. It's a small business. Right. It is really the definition of a small business.
3: At at the end of each podcast, I ask my guests if there's a, a product that they think is better than the hype. I wonder if you have a product that you think is better
2: than the hype. Hmm. Bascom's tapioca. Very cool. I want to know all about that. Well, it's the tapioca I've been using forever um, in one of my signature desserts. And it's just the perfect size, comes out the perfect consistency. It doesn't shred and fall apart like others do. And you can find it in the grocery store. That's incredible. How, what does the, uh, remind
3: me of the dessert?
2: Um, it's like a coconut tapioca soup. Oh, so with good. With the passion fruit caramel. Yes. Passion fruit sorbet, coconut sorbet, basil syrup. It's really delicious. I like it when you make it for that. me. <laughs> I like that you like that I make it for you because that keeps me having a job. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> last question in the show is
3: I like to give a shout out broadly to a woman who has inspired you, who you think that everybody needs to know about, whether they know about her already and she deserves more credit or, you know what, they just don't know who she is and they need to.
2: Um, I'm going to go with Shuna Leiden. Let's tell uh, tell people who Shuna is. Shuna is a pastry chef and a brainiac. That woman is so smart and so thoughtful. And I tend to think less about my desserts than she does about hers. I mean, she's an intellectual, I believe. Um, And a perfectionist and curious like no one you have ever met. She drove me crazy. She would follow me around the kitchen, just like, yep, 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 asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. And I turned around to her one day and I said, Shuna, you get two questions a day. (laughs) Choose wisely. You can learn a lot by observing. (laughs) She likes to tell that story too. But she's so thoughtful, so talented. Um, big call out to you, Shuna. Um,
3: Claudia, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly today. I really loved having you in the studio. Um, I really admire not only um, the beautiful desserts that, of the past, but your journey and all the things that you've you know, come through to be here today. And that you're in the blossoming, right? Oh, thank there, you. It's, it's not just that, like the time is now. It's that the opportunities ahead are sort of more dramatic and more surprising. And I, I like I to so. I like to be here just at, at the at the cusp. Um, thank you, Jeet. Thank you, Nina, um, for all of your help today. Thank you all of you for listening to Speaking Broadly and sending me notes, emails, um, DMs about what you like. Please keep on doing that. And If you like what you hear on the show, um, subscribe, rate, review. It's always helpful. Um, Encourages others to listen to these incredible stories by extraordinary people. And I'll be back next week with another extraordinary person, another extraordinary story. Have a great week. Thanks, Jaina. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast.